Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Our mission is to strip away the myths and hype that often surround the aesthetics industry. Inside Aesthetics aims to get to the bottom of the important topics that concern medical and allied health professionals, as well as the consumers themselves. We'll be showcasing the thoughts and experiences of experts in their respective fields. Each podcast will focus on a specialty, including surgery, non-surgical procedures, nutrition, well-being, and business knowledge from the personalities that have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general educational information about cosmetic procedures and well-being. It does not promote or endorse any cosmetic procedure, brand, or product. You should seek professional medical assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Dr. Sharam Shahidi. Dr. Shahidi is an Australian-trained and qualified specialist surgeon in ear, nose and throat, as well as head and neck surgery. He's also a member of the Australian Academy of Facial Plastic Surgery. His primary interest and area of expertise is rhinoplasty surgery. Dr. Shahidi treats all aspects of nasal and sinus pathology. Dr. Shahidi has become one of Australia's most well-known and respected nose surgeons, having performed thousands of rhinoplasties over the past 15 years. His treatment philosophy is to create not just an aesthetically natural and beautiful nose, but also a healthy and functional airway. So Jake Meat, um, now, Dr. Shahidi or, or Sharam, how do you how do you want us to address you? Well, Professor, sir. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm known on the internet, etc., as Dr. Shahidi. Sure. Okay. So I think uh, not that I want to be called that, but that's that's okay. that's Perfect. how I have been uh, sort of known on the internet. Okay. So Dr. Shahidi, meet uh, Dr. Sloan. Hello, Dr. Sloan, thank you very much for morning. coming. How are you? Now, Thanks Dr. Shahidi, um, where did you grow up and where did you train at medical school? I came to Australia when I was a teenager. <clears throat> so I did my, I went to school, to high school here in Sydney. And uh, I went to Sydney University and I did my studies at Sydney University and then the rest of the surgical training was here in Sydney. Um, so basically I've grown up and uh, studied in Sydney. Great. And um, why did you pursue medicine as a career? Look, I was always interested in science and... Uh, Wasn't your parents? I, must no, become a doctor. <laughs> not at all, not at all. Um, no, not at all. Um, I was interested in science. However, we had a sort of a... My brother tragically... Uh, passed away when I was 19 or 18 and uh, that's when I decided mm, I, I wanted to do medicine. So I always had an interest in science but the impetus for me to go into medicine was just a family tragedy. Tragedy. Sure, I'm sorry to hear that, I didn't yeah, hear that. Yeah, thanks. And why did you pursue surgery uh, rather than say being a physician or something else? Um, look, um, again I was always very good with my hands and I liked to do things, be more active mm. and surgery gives you that opportunity to be a bit more creative, uh, use your hands and uh, rather than just sitting there and uh, doing You're a more doer tests. rather than a thinker. Exactly. Yeah. I, I can understand I prefer that. to do things. I like to think but um, I'm, I'm happier when I'm doing things. I'm just going to um, plug in my phone. You guys keep talking. Okay, sure. Um, for the listeners who maybe don't really understand medical training or whatever, how do you become a surgeon, you know, just broadly? I don't mean ENT, but broadly. <laughs> Look, um, 
in Australia, there has been some changes. When I went through my training, that was many years ago. After you finished medical school, you become an intern. And then we had to do a couple of years of just general residence training. Mm -hmm. Then we had to do an exam called the primary exam, which had a very low pass rate. A lot of people did it, not everybody. A lot of people didn't pass. Yeah. Then once you... And many people had to do the test many times. Mm. Once you got through the exam and passed your primary, then you had to apply for an accredited position in surgical training. Right. And again, that was a challenge within itself. A lot of people didn't get on a training program, even though they had the um, primary. And there has been some changes. There has been some improvements the College of Surgeons have done. I'm not exactly sure uh how the setup has changed now compared to when I did it many years ago. But for me, after I did the primary, I uh, got onto the general surgical scheme. I did two years of general surgery, and then I decided to switch over. So what sort of things did you do in general surgery? I did <laughs> a lot of general <laughs> stuff. I did a lot of abdominal surgery, uh, cardiothoracic uh, surgery. So it was predominantly broad general surgery. Yeah. Uh, I went to the country, I went to Lismore for a year. Um, that didn't interest you enough to keep you doing appendixes for the rest of your life? <laughs> Look, I loved it. It was great, general surgery. But uh, I think for me, um, I had more of an interest in uh, to be more subspecialized in one area rather than do a, you know, be good at everything. I thought I could, I could, uh, be much better to doing and one thing and do it much better hmm. rather than be a jack of all trades. Did, did you have one eye on the fact that your lifestyle might be better doing a different type of surgery rather than being on call, you know, every hour of the day? Oh, of course, of course. You know, when you're young, you feel invincible and uh, you're happy to do many hours and lots of on call. Hmm. And uh, the other thing with general surgery was uh, there was a lot of trauma. Yeah. And a lot of people do pass away and that was hard to deal with day in day out and being on call and uh, I in choosing a specialty I would have I liked to choose a specialty that um, there was not much mortality yeah and uh, so that's another reason why um, I chose a subspecialty rather than a general surgery okay seems to be heading that way in general I mean um, the general surgeon seems to be something that's a, I mean, you know, you guys correct me if I'm wrong, seems to be something that's, you know, uh, of yesterday or, you know, you seem like you see specialists now that subspecialize in a specialty. So you might like yourself, you specialize in, you know, uh, rhinoplasty, whereas, you know, you've got orthopedic surgeons who just do shoulders or just do knees. It seems to be that that's the, the trend that people want to just really hone in on a particular procedural subset of correct, procedures. Especially in the city, in mm. the bigger cities. As you go out, obviously yeah. you have to be able to do everything. Mm -hmm. But in the cities, there's always somebody who is subspecializes and uh, honing onto one type of uh, procedure or surgery. And I guess that will allow for, I guess, ultimately um, better outcomes because you're becoming so fluent in, in I guess, a narrower scope. Of procedures, so I guess you know the patients are benefit. Obviously, you know as a as a as a practitioner, you become a lot more comfortable and fluid, and the patients are getting better outcomes as well. Of course, yeah. 
it's just, I guess it's supply demand. You can't be a middle finger surgeon, you know. <laughs> but as you say, the, the more rural you go, you'll just be a jack of all trades and you Correct. manage trauma and elective procedures and bowels and maybe a bit of plastic surgery if you have to. So, yeah, I, I, you know, when I moved from the UK to Australia, it amazed me what a, a rural surgeon would have to cover. You'd have to be a, a urologist as well as a ENT surgeon and... Thank God I never had to do that. Yeah. I had to do that when I was a general surgical registrar at Lismore. I did everything, neurosurgery, cardiothoracic, urology, whatever came through the door, Yeah, you just had to deal with. Yeah, And uh, I did spend a year in the UK as well. Uh, oh, where did less you, than a year. Where were you? Um, I did a f um, fellowship in, at, in London. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I went to uh, Bath, Royal United Bath Hospital. Okay. So I did two uh, sort of uh, mini fellowships in the UK. Right. I was planning to stay there for the whole year, but unfortunately my mum got sick and I had to come back, so I didn't spend the whole year there. But um, I you spent like the food. <laughs> UK in the UK. <laughs> uh, and the weather. Yeah. Actually, to be honest with you, I didn't mind it. I, yeah. I really enjoyed uh, being in the UK, proximity to the rest of Europe yeah. and uh, all of that. Um, no, it was it was uh, very enjoyable, and I would go back any time. And I worked, you know, as a in in a, uh, in NHS, and I knew how the system worked, and yeah. uh, it was interesting. Did you notice? Um, well, this is what fifteen years ago when you trained. Rare. So, did you notice any major changes between the NHS and the Australian Medicare system? Yes, Australian medical system is somewhere between the American and the NHS. Yeah, somewhere in the middle. Mix of private, as mix well as of public. private and public, and depending where you practice and how your practice is set up. Right. But it is sort of like uh, a bit of both. And I understand that you only do private practice now or any public work? I do. I used to do, work in the public system. I did it for about eight years or so. Yeah. And, uh, um, uh, but now I'm just in the private practice. Okay. And in terms of um, your career choice, mm -hmm. so you've gone from doing all this, you know, rigorous training mm -hmm. and you get to a point where you have to make a decision on what the next step is or where, you, you know, where, you know, what your ultimate future career is going to be. Um, how, did, how did you come to the decision that you wanted to move into ENT surgery as opposed to something like plastics or what have you? And I guess there probably is a little bit of confusion for our listeners in terms of what is the difference between a plastic and an ENT surgeon because there's obviously a little bit of, a little bit of crossover. Um, yeah, so how, how did you... Look, when I was doing general surgery, I knew that I wanted to change over and it was exactly as you said, it was a choice between plastic surgery and ENT surgery. In Australia, when I went through the training, plastic surgery was not cosmetic surgery. It was more reconstruction, burns, hand surgery, mm -hmm. um, etc. And uh, um, there was a lot of crossover with general surgery and other people doing plastic surgeries. Um, in terms of ENT, ENT is a very different uh, field. Mm. Um, it's you could be doing operations which take ten minutes on small kids, or you could do operations that take fifteen hours, total reconstruction, head and neck surgery. Um, so it's a very broad spectrum, and that appealed to me—the broad spectrum of doing lots of different things. And uh, you could deal with kids, you could d deal with adults, or even uh, all spectrum of age. And then 
in ENT surgery, you deal with all the diseases, obviously, ear, nose and throat, uh, as well as any diseases within the head and neck region. So essentially, the region between your brain and your chest, which is the head and neck region, everything within that area, all the diseases you can deal with. And then within the ENT and head and neck surgery, there is a subspecialty. You could do pediatric ENT. So that's you, for children. Children. You could do voice and swallowing specialty. You can specialize in nose and sinuses. You can do facial plastic surgery. You could do head and neck surgery. Then you can do ear surgery, otology. And then within otology, you can do neurotology. You can do middle ear or inner ear surgery. So there's a whole broad spectrum mm. of subspecialties and diseases and that appealed to me. Is right. that different to, I don't know if you know about the UK, but in the UK head and neck surgery was as far as I understood one specialty and it was mainly cancer work whereas maxillofacial surgery was more of the structural bony issues and then ENT from my perspective was more nose and ear yeah. only. Um, look in Australia many years ago uh, head and neck surgery and ENT combined uh, in the past, a lot of the head and neck surgery was performed by general surgeons mm. and still a lot of general surgeons do head subspecialize in head and neck surgery, but it has become part of the inners and throat specialty. What, was that just because they weren't training enough people or why, why did they combine? I think it was just uh, you could get better exposure. Okay. So there's still, as I said, there's a lot of general surgeons who do head and, neck, head and neck surgery. And then you've got to obviously reconstruct it. And a lot of the plastic surgeons uh, did a lot of reconstruction of the head and neck. Yeah. And nowadays a lot of even general surgeons and ENT surgeons do a lot of reconstructions themselves. Um, maxillofacial surgery in Australia, it is different to UK. In UK, a lot of maxillofacial surgeons did a lot of rhinoplasty, head and neck surgery, etc. In Australia, they tend to do mainly maxillofacial surgery, uh, which is, you know, um, operations on the jaw, um, etc. And they're usually trained in dentistry and medicine. Yes. Yeah. So they're doing things like uh, like implants and things like that in the mouth. Um, not just implants, doing like mandibular advancement, bringing the jaw forward or bringing the jaw backwards. And uh, that's got its own ramifications in terms of sleep and uh, bite and uh, wow. etc. Fractured uh, fractures of the mandible, fractures of the face, etc. So you do your, you make the decision to do ENT training. You successfully go through that process, which I can imagine was, was again, as rigorous or if not more rigorous than the, the training you'd had before. Yes. Um, and then now you find yourself in a position where you're in, in private practice and you're specializing in noses or uh, is it only cosmetic or are you doing uh, functional nose work as well? When I finished my ENT training program, uh, I wanted to do facial plastic subspecialty. So that's what I spent a whole year um, doing some fellowships in Australia, doing some mini fellowships in the States and then going to UK. So I spent the whole 12 months just learning more about facial plastic surgery. And how many years, just for the listeners, up to this point have you already put in to get to where you're at now? Well, um, a lot. <laughs> 
Uh, I think uh, the total training time, it would be from medical school, you're looking at like 16 to 17 years. So you're already 16 or 17 years in before you've even started training on what you're ultimately going to be doing in terms of, you know, now you've gone through, you've gone along this path, you've acquired all these these skill sets and now you're at a point where you go, uh-huh, this is what I want to specialise in, which is face, facial plastic ENT surgery. Is that right? Have I said right. that facial correctly? Facial plastic surgery. Yeah. And so then right. the other thing that I was interested in was noses and rhinology, sinuses. Right. So I did some training in uh, diseases of the nose and the sinuses mm. and facial plastic. And then somehow those two, I got as I got busier and I busier and I did less facial plastic surgeries and more noses and more um, sinus surgery, etc. And now I'm basically just focusing on the surgery of the nose. It could be functional, mm-hmm. breathing. It could be aesthetics and cosmetics. But whatever needs to be done. So that was a process. That was a natural, a natural process. That wasn't a conscious decision. Going. That was just the way that I guess serendipity. It, Co- it hap- yeah. Correct. Uh, and as uh, you get more clients in a certain field, you tend to do more. We become more comfortable at it. Then you develop a reputation. More people come, and uh, so that's what happened. What, what does facial plastic surgery cover, and, and what did you used to do? Facial plastic surgery. Um, any aesthetic type of work in uh, on the face. In the States, uh, there is a subspecialty which is called the facial plastic surgery. And there's a European academy and also an Australian academy, which most people do a fellowship of. Mm-hmm. And then you, and you could have ENT background or plastic background or even maxillofacial background, any sort of a specialty background, you can do that year of uh, facial plastic training. And uh, you could do things like blepharoplasties, that is eyelid surgery, brow lift surgery, facelift surgery, uh, or even some reconstruction of the face, like skin cancer work, um, rhinoplasty, uh, ear surgery and pinning ears back, okay. as well as reconstruction of the face. Yeah. So that's what a lot of facial plastic surgery entails. Anything uh, involving cosmetic and aesthetic surgery, which is on the face. Am I right in saying you still do some ear surgery or is that? I do. Uh, I do actually. I enjoy doing uh, ear pinning. Yes. And especially in children, it's very satisfying. And a lot of kids who get bullied at school because they've got protruding ears. Mm. And I do a bit of uh, autoplasty surgery, which is ear pinning. Okay. And uh, um, it's amazing how it changes the kids' self-esteem when yeah. they have their what what age would you consider operating when does the face stop growing and uh, the ears actually are predominantly by the age of about five or six they're like 70 or 80 percent adult size right so um if a child has uh, got obviously uh, protruding ears which are problematic to them you try to get them done early on uh, first or second year of school, okay. or even before starting school. Yeah. I guess, you know, you don't want to wait until the child's gone through 10 years of Correct. mental trauma from being bullied at school. Correct. So the sooner you can, as soon as the child expresses the concern, mm. and if they're old enough, like if they're seven, eight, ten 10 years old, uh, 
um, you could easily um, talk to them and operate on them. How do you consent uh, an eight-year-old for surgery? Um, look, um, just like you talk to them. You ask them, do you know why you're here? Yeah. And an eight-year-old can tell you why they're there, and they yeah. usually tell you, I'm here because of my ears. <laughs> uh, or or I, I, I don't want to cover my ears with my hair anymore, or I get uh, called names at school. Sure. And you can ask them, does this bother you? Yes, it bothers me. And you say to them, do you understand what we're going to do? We're going to do a surgery. We're going to make cuts at the back. This is what's involved. Do you? And uh, surprisingly, especially girls, eight-year-old girls are very articulate and they know exactly what's going on. Yeah. And especially with boys as well. So they tell you they know why they're there and they know what they're having it done. Um, and, of course, the parents uh, would tell you as well. Have you ever been in a position where you felt the child maybe wasn't so for the surgery but the parent wanted the surgery absolutely one case i can remember exactly one case that right. was the case and uh, i did refer them to my psychologist that i work with uh, closely with yes and um, i said before we do any surgery i need to make sure that uh, i feel comfortable as well as everybody else uh, that sh the child is the person who is seeking this surgery. Yes. Okay. Um, we're actually having a chat. Thank you for referring that uh, psychologist onto us. We've got her on in a few weeks to have a chat because we think it's a really interesting area that's probably overlooked a lot in terms of, you know, the decision-making process for a potential patient um, to make sure that, you know, it be the body dysmorphic issues are addressed. Um, you know, sometimes people might be doing things and the reason they're wanting it is because of something else rather than, you know, this, this is something that's much bigger that's bothering them. So I think it's a really important topic that we wanted to talk about mm. and discuss. Um, is that something that you do, like, uh, like, I guess, out of 100 patients that you might see, how many of them do you think you might refer on to this psychologist? Uh, look, psychology is like medicine. Um, there's broad range. So you have to find a psychologist who's got a special interest mm -hmm. in this sort of... Uh, field and uh, I've been working with uh, the psychologist for many years now. She had a special interest, we got to know each other, sent some patients to her, she knows how I do things, I know how she does things. We work independently, she doesn't work in my office, she doesn't work for me, she works for the patient. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important. Uh, so if a patient comes to me I tried to get to know the patient the best I could. My staff do the same, trying to work out why they're seeking surgery, what they're trying to achieve or what they're trying expectations are. And uh, close to 50% of my patients are, or more are referred to the psychologist, not because I think they've got psychological issues. It's because I think it helps to for them to speak to somebody who is independent, who works for them, who has seen the results of my surgery and he, she could discuss with them expectations, why they want to have surgery, etc. And I think from one point of view, it's a good educational exercise for the patient. And sure, every now and then we do find patients who may require further psychological evaluation and further psychological treatment before surgery. 
And basically what I'm trying to do is make sure that every patient who comes to me, I treat them as though they are my family. What would I do with my cousin if she was sitting in front of me? And that's the sort of advice I give to the patient. What I want to do with the patient, it gives them the best possible outcome, both aesthetically, surgically, as well as psychologically. I could do an operation and I could do it very expertly and professionally and have no side effects or complications. However, how the patient psychologically reacts to those changes is very important. And I think it's important for them to be supported mm. psychologically as well. How do you pick up on those 50%-ish of people? Well, I think 50% it's, could be more, could be less. Um, as I said, a lot of the times, um, just by talking to people, mm. and I've been doing this for a long time. I've done many, many thousands of patients, uh, many cases, and you get the feel to, as to when you talk to patients as to when you look at the physicality of the nose and what they want to achieve and what surgery can achieve, sometimes you think there's a mismatch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And when there's a mismatch and you want to get a, another opinion as to whether you think you're doing the right thing, it's a good idea to bounce it off the independent psychologist. Mm. And uh, uh, I think it would just help um, everybody. Do you find all of the patients receptive to getting a second opinion? or No, not a lot of patients are receptive and uh, a lot of the times I recommend it to them. And if in a, some cases which I believe are absolutely essential, then that would be part of my requirements. I'll ask the patient, yeah. that is, uh, I believe you should do this and, uh, um, and I would put it to them very strongly that, that I would like them to see the psychologist. Um, but ultimately, it's for their benefit. Of course. Yeah. I can ultimately. imagine it would be quite a delicate conversation to have with someone uh, recommending that they go and see a psychologist. Yeah, they might take it as this person thinks I'm crazy or... Yeah, sure, but we, uh, we specify that we're not just talking, we're not here for do psychological evaluation. Mm. We're here trying to give you a better outcome. Sure. And uh, not everybody deals with the post-op recovery the same way. Mm. And as I said, there's a physical healing and then there's a psychological healing. Mm. And uh, it's best for the psychological healing to be dealt with by a psychologist who knows mm. the field. Um, but ultimately, as I said, it's for the patient's benefit. In a way, for me, it's much easier to just operate on people. Yeah, And uh, it's a lot easier to not, talk, do anything, just say, okay, right off, uh, right, off, let's operate on you and uh, put them on the operating table. Uh, but that's not how I want to do things. I want to make sure that they get a good outcome. That's that's a really, you know, admirable approach, I guess, when you look at this in industry and it's, you know, everyone knows that the cosmetic field is, you know, is an industry that's very popular, it's very lucrative to have a surgeon such as yourself that's actually more interested in, well, not saying that other people don't, but I guess you have a particular feel like you have a, a moral obligation and responsibility to make sure that the patients are making the decisions for the right reasons and not taking advantage of someone's, you know, insecure potential issues. Look, yeah. again, my philosophy is deal with every patient as though they are my relative, mm. as if they are related to me. How would I deal with my own relatives and what would I do for them? I try to do exactly the same thing for every patient who sits in front of me. Treat them um, as though they are 
my family. Mm. The mum test. Would you do that for your mum? And then yeah, yeah, absolutely. Makes your ethical compass a lot easier to yeah follow. I guess exactly. And if there's something you're not going to do for your own relatives, I would not do for a mm. patient. And uh, from my point of view. Um, Again, as I said, it's much easier not to have that conversation. It's not. It's much easier yeah. not to send them to. And sometimes when you send a patient to a psychologist, and the psychologist would advise you not to operate on them, to some extent, that's bad for the running a business. Yes. Mm. So I am running a business as a businessman, but I'm not a businessman. I'm a doctor first. Yeah. I have to make sure that I put patients' uh, well-being and welfare first. And if it means that I may miss out on an operation, well, that's the way it is. Well, I think it's taking that that long-term approach um, with the business and also being able to morally be able to sleep with yourself at night. Sleep, 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 sleep with yourself? Sleep with yourself. <laughs> yeah. Some of us. Um, you know, being able to live with yourself and being able to sleep yeah. easy knowing that you've done the right thing by the patient. Um, I guess on that point, um, you know, running the business side of things, how do you transition from all those years of training being in a in a public system where you've made the decision to go out into private practice where essentially, you know, you're, well, correct me if I'm wrong, probably not armed with information and expertise in running a business. How That must be very difficult. You're 100% right. It is very difficult and we have got no training mm. in how to set up a business, how to employ staff, how to deal with all of that. There has been some effort in the recent times in certain uh uh, institutions and uh, like College of Surgeons trying to teach and have classes and training sessions on how to set up your own practice. But most doctors, you finish the medical training and then suddenly you are a small business owner mm. and we've got no training. We just hope that we do just do the best you can. I guess you just talk to other people. Mm. And a lot of in surgery, a lot of us, we tend to, in that's many years ago, we tended to join another practice mm. as a junior. And that was a transition. You joined uh, your mentor or somebody more senior and then learned the ropes and had to uh, run a practice. Mm. Um, but yeah, definitely not easy. I guess the last thing you want to do after all that training is more training. <laughs> okay, I know how to do the procedures. Now I need to go and learn how to run a business. Yeah. It would be also very other, daunting. And the, the tax other, implications. Yeah. And the tax. The other important thing is surgical training teaches you how to operate. It does, does not teach you who and what not to operate on. Uh. That's another thing that comes with experience. You know how to, it's like that saying, you know, if you've got a hammer, everything becomes a nail. So at the end of the surgical training, you've got a giant hammer, yeah. um, but you've got to learn what's a nail. What's a nail, <laughs> and that doesn't come easy. That comes many years of uh, experience, and a lot of the time, when you're sitting there in front of the patient, you're thinking, "I'm here trying to help you. I can offer you surgery," but then you've got to take one step back and say, "Hold on, is this surgery going to achieve what they actually?" want yeah. and uh, that's the hard part and that comes with experience and no one can teach you that even if you're with, with your mentor it's something that you just know through meeting the patient doing the consult doing the surgery doing the you know post-surgery like that's yeah as you said mm -hmm. no one can teach you that no one. It's, it's just like 
life, you know, wisdom. Mm. Wisdom comes with experience and time, and nobody can teach you that wisdom. Mm. Uh. We, have to, we all have to learn the hard way. <laughs> Taking you back to ENT, I guess, questions, what are the main symptoms or conditions that come through your door? Look, if you do general ENT, you have a lot of kids with uh, ear problems, throat problems, tonsillitis, sleeping problems, snoring. So there's a lot of uh, pediatric uh, component. And then there's the general adult ENT components, uh, throat problems, swallowing problems, ear problems, hearing problems, sinus problems, nosebleeds. Um, so there's a whole gamut of ENT diseases, uh, which are very common in general practice. Mm. However, in my practice, obviously, of uh, focused onto the nose and the sinuses, yeah, and predominantly nowadays, essentially, noses. Um, so, in a general ENT, there's a broad spectrum of mm -hmm. diseases. Okay, what um, is a common like nose shape or ethnicity or, or a request for a nose that you see? What, can you summarize the, the common things that sure. you, you Look, do? Sure. Broadly speaking, these two types of uh, rhinoplasties. One rhinoplasty to make a nose smaller, mm -hmm. which is more of a Caucasian, a Mediterranean rhinoplasty. And then there's another type of rhinoplasty, which is to make a nose bigger, which is more of an Asian rhinoplasty. I specialize in making the noses smaller. Okay. So I do more of a reduction rhinoplasty. Most of the patients who come to me, again, can be subdivided into two categories. One category who have problem breathing through the nose, football player broken the nose, snoring, can't breathe. And then there's another component, another group who have got, they're not happy with the nose, whether it's the size of it, the shape of it, the symmetry of it, etc. And uh, so these are the two big groups of patients who walk through the door. Yeah. And then in terms of a type of surgery I do, I, I call it the aesthetic functional rhinoplasty. I do make the noses look better, but at the same time, considering my training, being an ear, nose and throat surgeon, having done rhinology, I want to make sure that they breathe better as well. Yeah. To me, if a patient, if I did an aesthetic rhinoplasty and the nose looks fantastic and they can't breathe, I can't really refer them to anybody else, yeah. which is different to a plastic surgeon. who, If they've done an operation, the nose looks great, the patient comes back complaining, they can't breathe, they say, go and see an ENT surgeon. Okay. I can't really do that. So my effort, my emphasis is to make sure that the noses look beautiful, but they function well as well the best we can within the limits of um, surgery. So obviously not getting too bogged down in detail, but what happens when someone gets a punch in the nose? What, what is going on inside and why can't they breathe? Uh, look, uh, I think ultimately if you get <laughs> you get a big punch on the nose, something gets dislocated, whether it's the bone or the cartilage. Okay. So the plumbing goes wrong. You get a kink somewhere. Yes. But is that and all sort of outside or is there something going on it could inside be as well? Definitely internally, like the septum, which is a partition separating the left and the right side of the nose, it could uh, become deviated right. and okay. dislodged. Yeah. And then that would get causes blockage. And uh, ultimately, a good nose, in terms from the functional point of view, 
it has to everything has to be as straight as you can get it if you can get the septum as straight as you can the nasal bones as straight as you can have adequate support for the nose especially at the tip of the nose it tends to function better okay can you measure the function or is it just a case of uh, how's your breathing um that's uh the easiest way you can measure the function uh, there are objective testing however those objective testing are not freely available or easily available. There's only one centre in Sydney that I'm aware of that does that objective testing. Mm. And we do utilise that centre. And uh, it would give us further information and uh, um, guidance as to what we can do. Okay. Going back to uh, the more cosmetic surgery then. So you specialise in making a nose smaller. What do you think... Why do we, why do we sort of generally not like a big nose? What what's wrong with that? I think it's proportions. If the proportions are not right compared to the rest of the facial features, it tends to look out of place. Yeah. And size of a nose for a man is different to the size of a nose for a woman. So really, you have to look at the whole patient's facial proportions and facial aesthetics. Yeah. And then look at the nose and say, okay, what is it about this nose that doesn't fit in with the rest of these features? Yeah. And what can we do surgically to enhance it? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's just a matter of getting the proportions right. I mean, in my you know practice and I do non-surgical work, often people with a larger nose have also got a smaller chin. Do you do any non-surgical work to improve that proportion with the chin? Non-surgical work, yes. I don't do... Um, any uh, chin implants or jaw advancements. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, definitely we offer a lot of patients non-surgical work, fillers, etc., to the chin. Okay. And I usually say, let's, uh, again, it's a balance, trying to balance and getting the proportions the best you can. Yeah. Do you work with a lot of <clears throat> uh, physicians that would like to do work, like such as uh, what uh, Jake does? that would refer people on to you that I guess are wanting something that's beyond what can be achieved. Absolutely. I and have. where where does that point sort of, where is that tipping point where, you know, you find that you're getting these patients referred on to you or, where, or when should they be referred on to uh, a surgical option as opposed to non-surgical? Look, non-surgical rhinoplasty is... Ultimately, you're making a nose bigger by putting more fillers in it. Mm. But what you're trying to do by making a nose bigger is making it more proportionate. And uh, it, in my experience, it works for a subgroup of patients. It doesn't work for everybody. And a lot of the patients who don't want to have the downtime and uh, they're happy to try it. So I have a lot of patients who've tried it. They're giving it a go. Some people are happy with the outcome. Of course, they don't come to me. But the ones who are not happy with the outcome or they want to have something more permanent, uh, then they get referred on to me. Mm. And also there's a lot of the times there's a patient who does have that nasal congestion, blockage, hay fever, and they are going to have the septum done anyhow. They're thinking, well, I'm going to have a surgery on my nose anyhow. I've used fillers in the past, but I want to now have something more permanent. Do you ever use a non-surgical nose job as a test for someone to show them the, the outcome of, say, getting rid of the bump on the bridge? Or I use the computer simulation. Okay. 
So I think by using the commu- computer simulation, you take the patient's photo yes. and I'll do exactly what you said using the computer. Yeah. Then they can see the before and after. And how close is the, the final outcome c- compared to this? It's, it's pretty close. Um, 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 I haven't recently analyzed it, but the last study we did, it was uh, 80% of the cases were very close, Okay, if not better. Yeah, that's great. Going back to the non-surgical one, I'm, I'm interested in this. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think it's controversial? Or do you think it's very high risk or just you know, as much risk as any other filler? Look, uh, fillers, as you know, if you've got a good knowledge of anatomy, good knowledge of how the fillers work, and experience, they're relatively safe. They're very safe. Mm. However, when things do go wrong, they go really wrong. Dramatically wrong. Dramatic. Yeah. And so I think uh, nothing replaces good training and understanding. Yeah. Um, and knowing how to deal with the complications should they occur. Uh, in terms of non-surgical rhinoplasty, in my practice, very select number. Mm. Um, I can remember in the past year, out of all the hundreds and hundreds of patients I have seen, I offered it to one patient as the ultimate treatment. However, I do a lot of non-surgical fillers in the setting of post-rhinoplasty. If you've done an operation, everything looks great. There's a tiny or small irregularity, minor irregularity, especially in the healing phase. Yes. I use the fillers to try to um, augment or improve the outcome. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, having done surgery in the past, you can't really know how a scar is going to heal or no. a bone is going to take. Everybody's, that- everybody's different. You can do the same operation. I, I tell this example to a lot of my patients. I've operated on twins and... Uh, sisters on the same day, same surgeon, same anesthetist, same recovery, and they heal differently. Yes. So everybody heals differently. Everybody looks after the nose differently post-op. And the outcomes are different. Yeah. So I use fillers in that sort of a scenario quite a lot, Mm -hmm. as need be. And of course, I tell the patients about the risks and complications. And... um, but I use very small amounts, yeah, and I try to use it in the appropriate level, etc. And I never use permanent fillers. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I always tend to use uh, the hyaluronic acid, which can be dissolved if need be. Yeah, and we always tell patients that they need to report back to me if there's any problems or complications. So to, just to make that explicit for people listening, so apart from things like, you know, bruises, swelling, asymmetry, needle marks, we're talking about the, the more um, severe risks like vascular occlusion? Yes. And if the, for, that's, we talk, again, we're talking about in, in the setting of a non-surgical rhinoplasty where you're using a filler. Mm. Just, you, um, sorry to cut you off, do you want to explain I mean, you guys, vascular occlusion is like <laughs> yeah, I'll, speaking I'll, uh, I'll, yeah. English. Sorry, I'll, I'll go through that. Yeah. Um, when you use a filler, mm-hmm. you're using a gelatin or jelly-like material and you're injecting it into the nose. That filler or material inadvertently can get into a blood vessel. Mm. And if it gets into a blood vessel, it can block it. Okay. 
And if you block a blood vessel that supplies a portion of the skin or nose, <coughs> or if that blood vessel could have um, connections to the blood vessels to the eye, you could potentially lose sight in that eye. You could potentially lose skin where the blood supply supplies. Right. So that, as you can imagine, dramatic, course, drastic. When you talk about that with the patient, they immediately say, well, I don't want that. <laughs> Nobody wants that. Um, but presumably on your surgical consent form, there would be serious risks as well. Maybe not the same, but what's the most severe risk that you would consent for? Look, of course, uh, anybody who has an anaesthetic, there's always a risk that they may not survive the anaesthetic. Yes. That would be the worst possible scenario, that you go in for have an operation and don't come out of it. Thankfully, that is rare. Yes. And uh, statistically, um, I guess you've got a higher risk of car accidents or something bad happening to you on the roads on the way to the hospital. Correct. You've got to put this into proportion and... I find putting it into something, like you said, that a client can relate to, like you've got more chance of being struck by lightning today or, or something like that. Get hit by a car. Yeah. Well, I guess <laughs> crossing it's... the road or um, car accident. So look, that would be the worst case scenario yeah. in any, any surgery. It's not just cosmetic or plastic surgery, any type of surgery. Yeah. You could have um, a problem Yeah. and uh, you may not come out of it. But so, I guess you guys are operating on a, a, a set of patients who, I mean, this is elective surgery. It's not emergency surgery. So in terms of, you know, the chances of this happening on someone that's probably relatively young, it's, obviously rare. You're not, it's you know, much safer than, I guess, being rushed to hospital for something that's going wrong. Of course, but yeah. there's always, you know, there's always a risk. And we tell patients and it's on the consent forms. And uh, But again, every time we fly, we mm. take a risk. Every time you catch a train, you take a risk. Every time you cross yeah. the road, you take a risk. I think the psychology from an elective or a planned operation versus an emergency is different isn't it you of know course. if something goes wrong when you're well you really don't take that very well whereas if it's an emergency you sort of go well you know yeah sort of had to take that risk anyway mm. so th that's the psychology that i totally agree with that you know you use a psychologist to help people balance that maybe sometimes i don't know if you use her for, particularly for that reason oh absolutely because um if somebody comes in and the nose is not that aesthetically unpleasing or they don't have any functional problems and they want to just a little tweak to the nose, the risk is you could end up worse. Yes. Mm. And you sort of, you've got to think how do we justify somebody who's totally elective, who doesn't have a problem, now going to have an operation and end up with a problem. And uh, generally as human beings, if we want something, we want it. We tend not to listen. Mm. And we've all done that as kids when parents told us not to do something and uh, we just wanted to do it and we just go ahead and do it anyhow. And sometimes um, patients, when they've got the mind set on something, they're going to get it anyhow. And I see it's as my job, it's important to inform them. And sometimes if they're not going to listen to me, maybe you go and have a chat to my psychologist and see what she thinks. Yeah. And uh, it's always being elective there's no rush. You don't have to do it tomorrow. We can wait. We can talk about it. We can think about it a bit more. We can discuss it. We can speak to the family. We can speak to the psychologist. And uh, before we rush in yeah. and do something which is uh, not reversible. So can you tell us 
what happens on the day of a rhinoplasty, a typical rhinoplasty? Or maybe even the consult process before that. Yeah, maybe. actually, a good point. Yeah, mm. Sure, look, on, uh, during the consult, um, there's a lot of talking, trying to work out what it is the, that the patient is not happy with and uh, finding out more about the patients, what the expectations are, who they are, what they're trying to achieve. Then I'll examine the patient, both internally and externally. I've got a special camera that I can look inside the nose, see what the anatomy of the nose is like. Sometimes we do further investigations like scans or even breathing tests, etc. How common is it for someone to have a functional issue when they didn't know they had it? It's quite common, actually. Right. A lot of patients, um, when you ask them and when you test them, they tend you tend to realise a lot of people in Australia got hay fever. Mm, mm. A lot of people got nasal congestion and blockage. I guess you learn to live with. Um, you get used to it. You you feel that it's normal. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, people don't realise. So uh, that's part of the examination. Then I take clinical photographs, and then I use my computer simulation software to make changes to the nose and try to get gauge as to what the patient wants and what's realistic, what's possible. Try to come up with a some sort of a template as to what's surgically achievable. Is this what the patient wants? Then uh, we provide them with a lot of information. I always see patients again and again before we, surgery, we perform surgery. Mm -hmm. And then we let them take all that information on board. They, a lot of patients would have done research before the coming to the consultation, but then my job is to make the consult about them. Just because somebody else had a certain operation doesn't mean it's going to suit them. Yeah. So we've got to work out what's suitable in their situation and educate them, give them information. And then if the patient is suitable to have surgery um, then and we offer them surgery, then we see them again. And uh, during that consultation, we hone in more on the actual surgery, go through questions they may have. So this process takes time. Mm. Sometimes, as we discussed in the part, uh, before, we get... Uh, seek help of a psychologist with the patient management. So if there's any further testing, blood tests, scans, we've got to go through all of those, make sure that we tick all the boxes and everything is um, right on track. And then on the day of the surgery, usually the hospital contacts the patient and tell them what time the operation has been booked. Mm -hmm. Then the patient have to come to the hospital ready and fasted. So they have to do anything else to avoid medicines or of course diet or anything like that. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, precautions they need to take. It's interesting, you said that I've actually got an app, and in my app I have got a special section on preoperative uh, precautions or preoperative instructions, mm. what to do and what not to do. Certain medications tend to thin your blood out, like aspirin. Um, certain foods they tend to make your blood a bit thinner as well. So increases the risk of bleeding. Garlic, things like that. Garlic, turmeric, um, well, bigger doses. We talk about high doses of fish oil. Mm. Um, so we've got a specific instructions uh, that we give to the patients what to do before surgery. Uh, 
and also in my app and also we give it to the patient in handouts as to specific instructions we give them what to do post-operatively to improve and enhance their recovery and then once the patient has been comes to the hospital they need to get admitted once they get admitted the nurse will check them make sure they're well as you can imagine we cannot operate electively on a patient who comes into the hospital with a bad chest infection. Yes. So we make sure that they'll, as well as we can get them, the anesthetist tends to go and assess them and talk to them and assess them. And then once they go into the operating theatre, there's a whole array of um, instruments that needs to be uh, attached to the patient to monitor their vital signs. And then the anesthetist's job is to put the patient to sleep safely. And then we start the operation and uh, usually in my operation when I do a rhinoplasty, as I said, I do predominantly reduction rhinoplasty, I make the nose smaller, but I try my best to make sure that the nose is both aesthetic and functional. Mm -hmm. So I deal with the septum and the turbinates and if they've got sinus problems, we tend to try to deal with them at the same time. And uh, generally speaking, an operation in my hands takes about two hours. Mm-hmm. Then we apply bandages and dressing and the patient goes to recovery. And uh, the recovery process could be anywhere between one to four hours, depending on the patient. Everybody's different. Everybody wakes up differently. So generally speaking, the whole process takes a whole day, between four to six hours to eight hours. Yeah. Uh, patient needs to have somebody with them uh, we would not discharge them on their own so we have to have a responsible adult with them so most will go home the same day most people go home same day unless uh, there is a reason why they should stay mm. or they have a preference to stay we have a lot of interstate patients and even patients from overseas and uh, they may want to stay in hospital for a day or two yeah but generally speaking, most patients uh, prefer to go home to their own bed and uh, uh, to their own family. Okay. Um, then the first week post-surgery, there's a lot of swelling and bruising and some bleeding. It's not a fun week. It's not painful, but it's uncomfortable. I remember my dad came home after having functional, mm. I, I guess, as well as cosmetic nose and he looked like he'd done 10 rounds with Mike Tyson. He yeah. literally looked like he'd been smashed. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, so, Dad, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not everybody's like that, but it could happen. Yeah. And uh, so the first week is basically resting. You rest as much as you can. Then about a week later, usually on day eight, we get the patients to come back and we remove the dressing. And uh, we give them further instructions as how to look after the nose. At this stage, the nose is quite fragile. You don't yeah. want to bump it. You don't want to knock it. You don't want to go to the gym and do a heavy exercise. So do people wear any protective mask or is it just a, a little bandage with a plaster? No, we, I give the plaster back to the patients yep. and uh, we teach them how to wear it, especially nighttime, Yes, especially when they're in bed. They don't want to knock the nose. So for the next month, we protect the nose with the plaster as much as possible. We give instructions. That first month could be psychologically difficult. Yes. Because in that first month, nobody looks great. And there's a lot of swelling. There's a lot of changes. That first month, and being psychologically very 
challenging, that's the time that also helpful to have a psychologist there that you can contact, you can communicate with, and you can talk to them whether the feelings is feeling normal or not. Mm. Um, as a surgeon, I'm in operating theatre a lot. So if they ring us, I'm not available all the time. However, the psychologist tends to be able to communicate with the patients much more freely. So I think that's a, another big help, having yeah. a psychologist on board who could help with the patient deal with those psychological issues in the first few weeks. I'll call the first month or so the ugly month. It just doesn't look right. Mm. Most people in about three months feel much more comfortable with the night. How many panicky phone calls do you get after week one saying, oh, I'm not sure this is uh, oh, right? Of course. Of course we do. And, uh, and uh, we always take it seriously. We always get them to send us photos or come in and have a look. And uh, a lot of the time, uh, with a bit of reassurance, everything settles down. Mm. Um so again, as I said, it's very helpful to have extra help uh, with our psychologist. Um, most people about three months to feel more comfortable. We tell everybody it takes 12 to 18 months for the nurse to settle, but in my experience and recently when I was at an international meeting speaking to a lot of experts in rhinoplasty, I think we tend to agree that two to three years is when the final result really comes out. Wow. It takes that long. It's a big commitment. It's a big commitment. It takes that long. Um, so first, and I see everybody for 12 to 18 months to check on them, make sure that everything heals as well as we could make it heal. And of course, there's going to be issues like swell, swelling or irregularities that we can deal with. There could be scar formation, there could be adhesions or... And we try to deal with all of that in that uh, post-operative stage and try to give try to give the patient the best possible outcome. Yeah. Um, not, as we discussed before, despite all best efforts, there's going to be cases where things don't go according to plan. Mm. People bump the nose. Somebody throws something and accidentally hits the nose. Uh, people get infections. Something can get a nosebleed. Again, most of those things can be dealt with. Every now and then something heals totally unexpectedly. And you may have to reoperate on the patient. Yeah. Generally speaking, if it's something that can be easily dealt with, we try to deal with it as soon as possible. But if something is long-term scarring or they may have had a small knock to the nose and then a year down the track that small knock has led to some twisting i tend to wait for 12 to 18 months before i reoperate on patients because the scar needs to remodel, scar, remodel mature it takes a time and you don't want to rush in you become um, sort of well known for taking on that uh, responsibility of revision nose surgery from even other surgeons is that correct that's correct however Operating on other patients on patients from other surgeons is a very delicate situation, and uh, um, it's entirely different specialty within rhinoplasty. Revision rhinoplasty is different to primary rhinoplasty. My main interest is primary rhinoplasty, and uh, that's what I focus on. So, if patients get sent from other surgeons, or if patients self-refer who have had surgery elsewhere and they want to have a redo surgery before i take them on i really want to make sure and assess to see what they want is achievable and realistic 
Because usually revision surgery is more complicated. Mm. I sort of, my analogy is like a renovations. Sometimes it's easier to just knock the house down and build a brand new house than try to have a house that you built, but they forgot to put a bath in the bathroom. Now you want to somehow fit a bathroom in there and it's much more complicated. Yeah. So revision could be like that. Revision surgery could be much more complicated than the primary surgery. Yeah. And I think a lot of patients, you know, quite understandably, they don't appreciate that. No. They just think, okay, just, just sort it out. Yeah. And, you know, they, they might never be able to, to achieve what they want if, if, if they don't have the anatomy or... And sometimes in the first surgery, I have patients who go overseas and they have surgery and the, um, the standards are different. Cartilage has been removed or foreign body has been put in there. Oh, wow. They didn't know. And then suddenly you open the nose up and you have these surprises. And then if you've got not adequate cartilage, you have to borrow it from somewhere else. You've got to get it either from rib or ears or and then that means another so suddenly a two-hour operation become four to six hours of her operation suddenly 12 months of healing might become two to three years of healing and two or three wounds and two or three wounds and as you can imagine um, everything is more complicated then you've got to really sit down and work out is this worth it when you're unhappy about a millimeter or two yeah is that worth doing my advice is always to the patient, speak to your original surgeon. He's in the best position to advise you. He knows what he's done and uh, see how you go with that. But sometimes that's not possible. The relationships are broken down and yeah. people move on. So revision surgery is a different entity on its own. So I guess the, the take-home message here is consider your primary surgeon very carefully. Correct. Do your research. And yeah. do your research. And again, as we said before, there's no rush. Take your time. And price not should not be the primary reason why you choose a surgeon. As I mentioned before, we have a lot of patients who go overseas because of the price. Yeah, It was cheaper. I've seen that a lot and, and high proportion of unsatisfactory results. Yeah. And then to fix that, it's much more complicated. And I guess as well, like even if you're not even looking at the quality of, say, one surgeon versus another, I guess if you go to another country, um, the what they th like cultural differences in terms of what makes a good nose over in, say, I don't know, Turkey, for example, mm. might be different to what's considered a good nose here. So you might have just a completely different aesthetic from country to country, just like fashion or clothes or. Correct. And also, as I mentioned before, I tend to see patients 12 to 18 months per surgery. Mm. And if you go overseas, have an operation, and then you've got another 12 to 18 months of healing, during that healing stage, who's going to look after you if there's any problems or complications? Mm. Or if there is a subtle irregularity that you could fix or deal with easily in the first few months, but it's much harder to deal with in two years down the track. So that's the other thing. Um, when people go overseas that they f tend to forget yeah. that it's not just have an operation and it's done. It's that healing f stage or phase that takes a long time. Patient compliance must be something that you from time to time struggle with in of terms course. of, you know, you can do the operation to the best of your abilities and experience, but what a patient does once they leave, 
your care and how that affects recovery. How, how do you how do you deal with that? And do you have issues sometimes where you know the patients done something that you told them not to do? Of course, it happens um, all the time. Um, we we try to again deal with everybody um, by giving them information. We give them information verbally in writing. The app is available all the time. We are contactable. Uh, my office, I've got my nurse in my office is contactable. So if there's any questions or concerns, we try to get back to the patients. And despite all efforts, people do things mm. which, um, you know, people sometimes cut corners or we advise them not to do certain things and they go ahead and do it. And uh, then the best we can do is deal with the consequences of it. And uh, you can't police everyone. Mm. And uh, we, everybody, we assume everybody who has had surgery, they want to get the best possible outcome. So um, that's all we can do. Can you satisfy my curiosity? I've never done no surgery in my life, but where are the scars and, and how do you access, say, the nasal bridge without sure. a big scar down the middle? Um, look, there's two types of no surgery. You can do a closed rhinoplasty or you can do an open. With the closed, all the intern scars, incisions are internal. Mm -hmm. However, you have a very limited access to the nose. So closed rhinoplasty is fantastic if there's a specific small issue or problem. You just want to shave the dorsum of the nose or the hump a millimeter or two. And uh, so that's fantastic. And I have done many, many uh, closed rhinoplasties, and I used to do a lot of them. In an open rhinoplasty, you make a small cut in between the two nostrils. Mm -hmm. So, um, in here, like just, just yeah, between the two nostrils, just slightly above the uh, border of the lip and the nose, that partition that separates the left and the right side of the nostrils. You make a small incision there in a sort of a zigzag fashion, so mm -hmm. it heals quite nicely, and then the rest of the incisions are internal. And you can lift the skin up and you have good access. It's like opening of a <coughs> bonnet of a car. Yeah. You just open up the bonnet and you can have access to the engine. And then you put the skin down. With the open rhinoplasty, you have better access. You can do better reconstruction. However, because you have done more extensive um, elevation of this skin, you tend to get more swelling, mm. more persistent swelling that takes longer to settle. Yeah. Um, Having done both closed and open over the past 15 years, I now only do closed operations for very smaller, specific problems. And I tend to open more uh, cases because with an open approach, I have better access. I can do better reconstruction. Sure, they may have persistent swelling for the first few months or a year, but I think in the long term, we're talking 5, 10 years down the track, I believe you get a better outcome mm. with the structured rhinoplasty, that's what I specialize in, that I make the nose, once I open it up, I re reconstruct and restructure the nose. Uh, again, initially you may have more swelling, but in the long term, you have a more sturdy, stronger, yeah. structured nose. Have you seen a different uh, a difference in the trends of, of uh, say, the 1980s nose. You know, I don't want to throw in words, but the Michael Jackson nose, the very thin sort of scooped nose. Yes. W why was look, that seen as... Look, in the 80s and the 90s, um, that was how it was done. 
And uh, a lot of people used to do, again, closed rhinoplasty. Even there, in nowadays in Europe, there's a lot of closed rhinoplasty happens, which is great for uh, some patients, but not for everyone. Mm. And I think nowadays the tendencies towards, and I think what happened with patients like um, Michael Jackson that you mentioned is a lot of cartilage was removed mm. to give and those a very narrow aesthetic look. But what happened in five, ten years' time as the skin envelope started to retract, yeah. lack of support meant the noses became these very small pixie noses yes. and retracted small noses. I have gone away from that. What I do now is I do reconstruction and structured rhinoplasty where I do not just remove cartilage. If I remove it, I replace it mm. and rebuild the nose. And by doing that, you tend to have a much better lasting outcome. So, so can a nose literally collapse? Yes. So, if you don't have adequate structure and support, that's and I think probably that's what happened yeah. to Paul Michael Jackson. Wow. And he, repeat surgery, of course. Multiple surgeries, lack of support, the whole thing just crumbled. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, well, I think that was the least of his problems in the end, though, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, in terms of the time it takes, the same amount of time doing a closed versus open? Or no, a closed tends to be quicker. Okay. Because you're not doing as much. Open structured rhinoplasty takes a lot longer uh, because after you've opened the nose, you have to deal with all the anatom anatomical issues and then rebuild the whole nose. And rebuilding the whole nose using cartilage graft takes a long time. Mm. So the, the types of surgery, apart from the obvious one, which is the bump on the, the bridge of the nose, can you also lift the tip Yes. or, uh, you know, straighten the nose if it's pulling to one side? Yeah, once you open the nose up, you can put it back together. You try to put it back together in the best uh, possible aesthetic position mm. and proportionate. Of course, you can't fix everything. There's always limitations. And especially with the... Uh, noses which are asymmetrical, mm. you've got to really analyze the face the because a lot of people have asymmetrical faces. And if you've got an asymmetrical face and an asymmetrical nose, it may not be possible to get the nose perfectly straight. Or if they get the nose straight, then it the facial asymmetry <laughs> becomes more obvious. Yeah. So you've got to be very careful with that. And that's part of the consultation process when I examine the patients. In that situation, do you work with uh, anyone who does the face or non-surgical treatments or is that not something? No, that's uh, we do. And a lot of that, um, a lot of patients tend to go to orthodontists to get the teeth and the maxilla try to balance it. Most of the facial asymmetries are minor. Yes. But if it's more major, yes, we do refer to patients in that field to try to improve the asymmetry as much as possible. Great. I've spent a lot of time looking at your before and after photos. Um, and I think that you and I had some, had some chats in the past about just how difficult it is sometimes to, for the, I guess, what as a surgeon would uh, recognize as a great outcome and what a patient may recognize as a great outcome. Whereas sometimes someone may think that it's too perfect or, <laughs> You know, there's that. It's it's such a obviously the most central part of the face, so subjective. 
do you find that quite challenging sometimes making sure that you know expectations between what you can achieve and patient can achieve and what they think is good versus what you think is good well absolutely that's very hard to deal with so um again i tried to go as objectively as i could i go with proportions and measurements and uh there's set certain set of uh, measurements and rules that if you apply that to the nose majority of the cases tend to be aesthetically pleasing noses and uh sure i may believe that uh the patient's got a perfect outcome the whole family everybody else does but the patient which is the most important person of all does not believe so mm. and uh that's very difficult uh because sometimes uh what they want it may not be achievable mm. what was the reason that you don't do say a more of an asian type nose versus i do do asian noses oh, as you well. do okay yeah um uh, asian noses you need augmentation uh i.e making the nose bigger and there are a couple of ways of making a nose bigger you can put an implant in there which is the most common thing that happens in asia mm-hmm. i don't like implants because you're going to have this permanent uh risk of something going wrong with it or infection infection so i would then need to use patient's own uh material which is cartilage mm-hmm. is probably either ear or rib and it's just the operation becomes a lot more complicated and then there's so much rib available mm. as opposed to if you open up a packet of silicone you can get any size you want so asian rhinoplasty is um a different type of surgery and uh, uh it just takes a lot more mm. uh it's it's different takes longer uh and it could be more complicated okay now as a a prospective patient looking to get a say a rhinoplasty done um what would you say would be the main differences between say choosing an ENT other than the functional side of things um an ENT versus a plastic surgeon look i think um i don't think it's the fact that you choose an ENT or a plastic surgeon as long as they're experienced uh i know plenty of plastic surgeons who are fantastic rhinoplasty surgeons and uh plenty of ENT surgeons who are fantastic rhinoplasty surgeons just because i don't think it's one or the other mm. i think it just depends on uh, the experience expertise and uh if they can get a good outcome and i guess it's finding someone who they've got can build a good rapport with and have they get on like there has to be like the ability to form like some kind of personal relationship where as well as communications you've got to be able yeah. to talk to each other and communicate and uh, convey what your um requests are and then making sure that the surgeon can also be on the same page with the surgeon and whether they have the same aesthetic goals and whether they can understand what you want and whether it's surgically possible uh and to have that realistic expectation that yeah you cannot you can only work with what you've got yeah now in terms of price what what's i guess the average person looking at in terms of you know a rhinoplasty mm-hmm. average look uh the three components of the price the first component is a surgical fee which comes down to the surgical experience time uh expertise and uh second component is anesthetic fee and the third component is the hospital fee mm. so adding it all up 
it could be anywhere between eight to twenty thousand dollars, right? Depending on what needs to be done, right? Uh, but most um, most patients are looking between ten to fifteen thousand dollars. Okay, wow. And I guess um, with patients that have a functional issue as well, you know, are there opportunities for people to get um, assistance from, say, other Medicare or the private health funds where these situations yeah, uh, occur? Private health funds, they cover for your hospital. Mm-hmm. So if you say, for example, you're a football player, broken your nose, you can't sleep, you can't breathe, and you have to have a reconstruction of the nose, uh, you may get some money back from uh, your health fund towards the hospital, and you may get some money back towards uh the surgical fee, but there tends to be, uh, you, it's very hard to get a full cover. Mm-hmm. So you will be, most people are out of pocket. Yeah. Okay. Just to touch on otoplasty again, the ear surgery. Um, have you ever heard of a non-surgical method of doing that? Yes, I have. Um, with the non-surgical otoplasty, you're still using sutures. Yes. So technically there's surgery. It's totally surgery. It's just they're awake. Okay. So essentially you're still performing operation. You may not remove skin or excise cartilage, but you're still putting sutures into to refold the ear. Okay. And the patient tends to be awake, so you need a cooperative patient. It's not really achievable on a six-year-old or an eight-year-old. And... Uh, also, um, you've got to expect that if you just use sutures alone, there is a higher recurrence rate or higher touch-up surgery rate yeah. for that. Um, so um, I think you just got to pick your patients. Okay. understand that autoplasty is quite pain, part of painful recovery. Is that right? Or it's not like everything else? Uh, it's, it's not that painful, actually. Okay. It's not a painful recovery. Um, it's like any other surgery. You make an incision, you've got to look after it, you've got to make sure it doesn't bleed or get infected. and uh, um, So it's no different to other types of surgery. Okay. One question that I f- forgot to ask. How do you feel um, the role of social media um, to exhibit what you do? Or do you think it's unethical to go to the point of you know filming a surgery or how do you utilize social media to sort of uh, advertise what you do look i'm a very conservative surgeon and when i'm in operating theater i just want to concentrate on the patient and the patient's well-being and uh, i don't want to be thinking about uh photos or videos i know a lot of good surgeons who do that they enjoy doing it they like it and the patients like it Mm -hmm. Uh, right now at this moment of time i haven't been doing that yeah uh, I haven't been videotaping surgery. I did do some videotaping of the surgery, of course, after obtaining consent, but I usually do it for educational purposes and meetings. Yes. And uh, um, and in terms of social media, I think social media is great to get the message out there. It's great for people to do some research. However, the most important thing is that people have to be aware that just because surgery on one person, they've got a certain result, it doesn't translate to everybody. Yeah. And uh, they have to have realistic expectation. Just because one person got a certain amazing result, it doesn't mean that they're going to get it. And the other thing that I have noticed with social media, we tend to want to show off with social media. So we put up better cases or people who are, have got an amazing result they're happy to show off the photos. Uh, 
So social media tends to show only great results. And a lot of people, especially with facial surgery or rhinoplasty, a lot of people are not happy to put their face on social media. So we could have 100 patients that we've operated on and just the best five, just only a few percent, small percentage are willing and happy to have um, the photos up there and the oh. rest who don't. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so it's then very hard to, uh, for patients to get a good feel as to what is realistic and what's not. Yeah. So that's my concern with the social media that people tend to um, believe in the magic of it. And a lot of people use, as you know, filters and uh, mm -hmm. um, some of the photos are not entirely. I mean, that's pretty unethical and actually, you know, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone, but that's actually illegal if you look at the I'm advertising not about, guidelines. I'm not talking about the doctors using filters. Ah, patients. 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 Well, that's, uh, that's a whole different can of worms. <laughs> yes. It's like patients who are happy with the results, the food, put the photo up and they tag you that he's my surgeon. But the patients like to use uh, <laughs> apps and uh, yeah. I'm not talking about the surgeons using those things. That's okay. I agree with you. That's not ethical and that should not happen. But uh, patients do use filters on social media and, uh, and look, the, the tendencies on social media to show the best that you could be and amazing places, amazing food, amazing things people do. And they want to show the show off the best. It's like an augmented version of reality across everything, whether it be just people's everyday life. Or version holiday. of reality. Yeah. So I think it's important that people keep that in mind. Yeah, that, you you've know, got to keep yeah. it in mind and uh, accept that there are certain realities and yeah. have a realistic expectation. Do you it, feel, sorry. Oh, I was going to say it must make it difficult sometimes where you get someone that comes in saying, oh, this, I want this nose. That you've done here. Oh, that friends had a procedure absolutely. done. Well, in fact, a few years ago at one of our meetings, I presented my had a selfie changed my rhinoplasty practice. Um, <laughs> that was what I was going to ask. Have you found that social media has influenced who's coming through the door? Oh, absolutely. And also, how I perform my surgery has changed because of the selfie and the social media. And again, my job is to some extent to educate people as to what's possible, mm -hmm. what's not possible and uh, what's achievable. And um, that's the hardest part to, to work out and also convince people. Mm. Uh, I mean, just from what I do, I'm sure it's similar to you. You have someone say, I didn't know I had a double chin until uh, my friend took a selfie, well, a photo for me from this angle. And that's the first time they've realized they don't like their looks. Because someone took a weird shot of them from That's right. and also 180 degrees. Patients want to have surgery to improve the photo. Yes, not the, not the not reality. The actual, not the reality. That's hard. If yeah. you want that, just get a good app with good filters. <laughs> just tell your friends to stop taking photos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You like to do surgery, which is quite invasive with yeah. risks, yeah. so that you can have better uh, photos. But this is a real reason why people are becoming self-aware yeah. because of just seeing lots of photos of themselves. 20 years ago when I was going through my training, you had to take a photo with a big cumbersome camera. Then you had to go and get it developed mm. sometime later and then have a look at the photo. And most of the time the photos were out of focus unless <laughs> you were a professional photographer or they were not selfies. They were all very small. 
And the only means for you to really assess yourself was in the mirror, or asking a family friend, what do you think about this? Yeah. But now, with the phones we've got, high megapixel cameras, you can take close-up shots, magnified shots in multiple angles and really analyze all the faults that all human beings, as human beings, we all have. And that's a double-edged sword, isn't it? That's a double-edged Analyzing things. And there is a thing in surgery that the resolution of surgery is about a meter or so, i.e. if I'm sitting in front of you about a meter away, which is a socially acceptable closest possible distance. David tries to get closer sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm only human. Yeah. If you cannot see that from that distance, then surgery is not going to fix that. Yeah. So if you have to be so close to magnify it and see the fault, surgery is not going to fix that problem. You know, it's the, it's the client who says, I can only see this thing in certain light at a certain angle with my phone on this filter. That's the sort of client that you're saying you have to be a bit cautious of? Yeah, you just have to educate him. Look, surgery is not going to fix that problem. Yeah. And you could spend a lot of money and go through a lot of complicated and then come back. Still saying, seeing still, this very, very minute thing. Yeah. And uh, surgery is not that. Accurate. It's not magic. It's not magic. It's surgery. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess sort of um, in closing, what would your advice to patients be looking to undergo rhinoplasty surgery? I think my advice is firstly, sit down and have a chat with your own family and work out what it is that you're not happy with. And if everybody else around you agrees with you and they can see what you're not happy with, then you might have a realistic expectation of what can be done. And then... There's no rush. Do your research. Talk to people. Talk to other patients. Go and see one or two surgeons and make sure that you can click with them. You can communicate with them. Have a look at the outcomes. Have a look at the results. And then be prepared that there's a small risk that things may not work out the way you want. And you have to be feel comfortable enough that you work with that surgeon. Because you're going to be seeing that surgeon for the next 12 to 18 months. And you've got to make sure that you can get along with Mm -hmm. each other and the other important thing is to follow the instructions if a surgeon has been doing a certain type of surgery for the past 10 15 years he's done thousands of them and if they tell you to do certain things just follow the instructions <laughs> because then <laughs> do as you're told yeah, yeah. from yep. that point of view and uh, don't try to modify or change things um and i think um have a realistic expectation as to what can be achieved and um, I think that's my advice I can give and uh, let price be the only guide mm. how when, can people get hold of you where, where, do you, where are you based and, and uh, my main office my office is at Bulara Eastern Suburbs very close to Bondo Junction train station and uh, uh, I'm on Instagram Facebook and Google me what's your Instagram uh, name uh, drshahidi.oz Okay. And also um, uh, our website and it can be found on Google. Great. Perfect. Well, thank, thank you so much. So much for your time. We thank really you for having it. me. It's been a great day. Thank you. Thank you.